Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of our podcast. Ask Christopher West. I'm here with my beloved wife. We had an exciting experience recently, kind of unexpected. It was unexpected. I had been planning a backpacking trip with my, with our, shall I say, kiddos. Yes. And strangely enough, both of our older sons got foot injuries. Oh my goodness. Weren't able to go. What was it that John Paul had? Oh, plantar fasciitis. Mm -hmm. Which means what? Yeah, really painful heel of both feet. So he was shuffling around, could barely walk. Yeah. And then Thomas got a cut on his foot and Mm -hmm. was unable to go. So I had been blocking off this time for a long time to do a backpacking trip, and I asked a very special person to go along with me. Who might that have been? (laughs) Well, you asked me if I would go backpacking with you. I had many reasons not to, mind you people. I'm not a backpacker at all. But this situation, actually, there were many reasons to say yes as well, which is kind of surprising. One of the big ones is that it is summertime. I cannot stand to sleep out in the cold. I just am very sensitive to cold, but of course, it's not super cold at night right now. That was a big help. So we went We, we went did. to a place called the, what's it called? Grand Canyon of Pennsylvania, right. which is a little bit of a misnomer. Yeah, well, it's kind of a nickname. It's yeah. Pine Creek Gorge is the actual name of the Yeah, area. you can look it up online. It is very, very beautiful. And we hiked over three days. We hiked 15 miles. We did four miles the first day and then found our camping spot. And then we did an eight-mile day. Mm-hmm. And then we did a three-mile day on our final day. What were, what were some of the takeaways for you? Well, it was amazing. I kind of semi like a retreat in, in the midst of being a vacation in that we spent a lot of time just walking mm-hmm. quietly, just sort of absorbing nature and the beautiful plants, flowers, and sounds of nature. And that, of course, just puts you in a, a recollected, peaceful frame of mind. And then we read the daily readings and prayed together and did kind of limited conversation. And so... I, not that we didn't talk at all. Of course we did, but it just had this kind of a retreat quiet rhythm feel. to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was actually, I, I loved the beauty. I loved being with you. I actually came home and felt refreshed instead of exhausted, which was surprising yeah. to me. Yeah. I love being in nature for a hundred million reasons, but something I especially love about backpacking trips is it's, it's a, It's like a sacrament of the interior life. There's so many experiences you have on a backpacking trip that get in your bones, get in your mind, get in your heart. And I draw from that imagery in my prayer life a lot. Mm. There's there's something to the, I I have a destination, I'm on a journey. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be easy, but there are so many beautiful things along the way. There are, there are little resting places that become an analogy of little respices we get in our interior journey. There are, we had the experience, this was a new one for me, I hadn't experienced this before on the multiple backpacking trips I've been on, but remember that field of, of nettles? Oh dear, <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, there was no option. There other was than no to- other way. We had to go through probably three football fields this is worth. A plant called a stinging nettle. A stinging nettle. The the trail was completely overgrown with these things that were just, and we we had shorts on because it was it's hot, so our legs were just getting stung. Stung for, by these these oh. plants that were yeah. So this is a new new fodder for the uh, interior <laughs> right. symbols, right? There are fields of nettles on the interior journey, <laughs> but there are also glorious views. It's when you know we we were hiking along that rim of the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon, yeah. and we'd get to spots where the trees would clear, yeah. and you'd get these glorious views. And that's also symbolic right. of the journey with, that we make interiorly with the mm-hmm. Lord. There are some hard climbs, but when you you embrace the difficulties, there are such rich, rich rewards. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was really a bonding time for us as a husband and a wife. Yeah. And our kids were great. They were at home by themselves. Mm-hmm. For, I think, is this the first time we left our kids in the house, like all of them by themselves uh, for, yeah. for overnights? I think, yeah, I don't we know. Had two overnights and they were home. Yeah. Yeah. So our oldest is 21. All is, all is fine. And they seem to have a good time bonding yeah. as siblings too. So yeah, yeah, it was really fun. It was. Thank what you. do we have for questions? Yes, we have some great questions. Thank you to our listeners. I'm going to start us off with one from Kyle. Kyle has a Theological question for you. All right, Kyle, let's do it. At the resurrection, we will be reunited with our bodies. Yes. But no one will be given or received in marriage. What then will be the primary purpose of our bodies? And then he says, how will we use our bodies to give and receive love in the resurrection? Okay, so let's. this is a great question, Kyle, and I I, I have to just say this because it's... There's, <laughs> I, f- I feel as a theologian, you know, we, we have to bow before the mystery and, and not be so quick to say, oh, I got the answer to that. <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, I have just loads and loads, I call them files in my brain. And immediately I hear the question and I know which file to go to get mm. the right answer, right? And I don't want to just jump in there and pull out my answer and give it to you and move on because these are mysteries and we have to have a certain reverence for the mystery and a reverence for the the place in your heart, Kyle, where the question comes from. We all have these deep, deep questions, longings, mysterious uh, stirrings in our hearts about what comes next. What's after this life? How's it all going to come together? And we have to begin in any reflection on the afterlife. We have to take that position of St. Paul, who, who himself had had these mystical experiences and glimpses of heaven that he says, I saw something I can't even share with you. But he, he said, eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has ready for those who love him. So that's our starting point. These are mysteries. Mm-hmm. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it even dawned on us what God has prepared for us. That's how awesome it's going to be. But we can, as John Paul II says, we can, by looking at the shape of our hearts, by looking at the, the kind of contour of our deepest longings and desires and, and properly examining those, we can begin to get a sense and a shape of what the afterlife might look like. As John Paul II says, Jesus' words about the resurrection do not fall into a void, we have these intuitions. Mm. And so Jesus' words about the resurrection land in a place in our hearts if we open to it. So 
All that said, here are some thoughts about the main purpose of our bodies in the resurrection. Number one, the afterlife is not in any way a negation of our humanity. Mm-hmm. And our humanity is the union of body and soul. This is so important. When we have a concept of the afterlife as a, a liberation from the body, we have a false concept of our humanity, as if our body is an afterthought, as if our body is some kind of shell in which our real personhood dwells. And then finally, when we die, we'll be liberated from that prison and be these pure spirits. John Paul II says this idea, which comes from Plato, this idea of, of the liberation of the soul from the body, this is antithetical to what we hold as Christians. We have this belief in the resurrection of our bodies, which means matter matters. The body is not an appendage to our spiritual humanity. We are not angels. We are human beings, and human beings are the, ma- the very definition of human nature is the marriage of body and soul. So the resurrection of our humanity, the, the everlasting reality of our humanity is in no way a negation or cancellation or deletion of anything that is human. It is the resurrection, fulfillment, redemption, and completion of everything that is human. What does the body tell us in this life? The body has a spousal meaning, as John Paul II says, and we see this chiseled into the sexual difference. A man's body doesn't make sense by itself. A woman's body doesn't make sense by itself. But seen in light of each other, we see this call to holy communion. And that holy communion of man and woman is just a little, little glimmer of the holy communion that awaits us in eternity the holy communion of Christ and the church. How does Christ love us? How is the heavenly mystery of love revealed in this world? The definitive revelation of the heavenly reality of Trinitarian love comes when the second person of the Trinity takes on flesh and says to the whole human race, his bride, this is my Body. Given up for you. It's a bodily reality. At the source and summit of everything we believe is the body of Christ given up for us. So how will we live this spousal meaning of our bodies in eternity? Again, with all reverence for the fact that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, what God is ready for those who love him, we can conclude and recognize this, as John Paul II himself says, in the resurrection... The spousal meaning of the body will now be lived in the marriage of the Lamb. Christ will give up his body for us somehow, mysteriously. We don't know how. We will virginally receive his body. And here, virginal, in the language of John Paul II, in the language of the church, virginal does not mean the absence of union. It means the perfection of union. We will all be virginal in our resurrected state. Again, that means the perfection of union. And here, we're talking of four particular unions or communions. Virginal means a perfect union of God and us. 
a perfect union of body and soul, a perfect union of the human race. We call that in the, in the eternal reality, we call it the communion of saints. And then there'll be a perfect communion between us and the new creation. Hmm. There, is a, there, is a, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Mm-hmm. I remember a few years ago, remember that big tree in our backyard, the double tree? Yes. And one of the sides of that... Half of it fell Half down. of it fell down in a storm. And I remember going out to that tree after it had been cut down and, and looking at the, the stump. Mm-hmm. I was really sad. Yeah. It was a beautiful tree that provided lots of shade in our backyard. And, mm-hmm. and first I heard these voices, like, that's stupid, it's just a tree. But I knew that, no, 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 that, that was like an accusing voice. That was not the voice of the God who created that tree. And God loves all of his creation. And I was sharing a certain sadness that that tree was no longer there. And I believe the creator had a certain sadness that that tree was no longer there. And then I heard this little whisper. Somehow, some way, in the new heavens and the new earth, I'll rejoice in that tree again. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. That's a proper Catholic cosmology, a proper understanding of the world. Nothing of God's good creation is ever deleted in the resurrected reality. It's taken up, fulfilled, redeemed, and completed. So, Kyle, I hope you love your body. Mm. You will be. I, you know, even though language, I was about to say you'll be with your body forever, but that's not the right language. We, we have a, a hard time even expressing the truth. You're not going to be with your body. You will be you for eternity. And the you you are, Kyle, is the union of body and soul. And the purpose of the body is to participate in divine love. We do that just in a sacramental way here through the sacrament of marriage is a is the particular way we express that bodily reality, not the only way, right? There's celibacy for the kingdom as well, which is a bodily expression, a bodily gift of self. But this is precisely the point. Celibacy anticipates the marriage of the lamb. It's a participation in that eternal reality even now. So final line here, Kyle, final thought. Your body is designed by God to participate in divine love. And for eternity, this will be the reality of our glorified body. Mm. What does it mean to have a glorified body? It means our bodies are sharing in the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It is the eternal exchange of love that the Trinity is. How do we participate in that? The second person of the Trinity took on a body and said, this is my body given up for you. In giving up his body for us, he's pouring out that Trinitarian exchange. And as we give up our bodies for him, we enter into that Trinitarian exchange with Christ. I hope you love your body, Kyle. Your body is you, and you are called to be a gift, not just here on planet Earth. That's just the glimmer. We're called to be a bodily gift for all eternity. Mm. This is good news. Yeah. This is our hope. This is the hope that saves us, St. Mm-hmm. Paul says. Mm-hmm. The hope that saves us is the hope of the redemption of our 
Our bodies. Our bodies. And I can certainly relate when you talk about JP2 saying that we have a, a place of desire in our heart where the church's teachings on the next life find, find a, home. a home in our hearts. Yeah. I know just for me, because from some very precious people to me have passed away, the thought of being together physically is an awesome thought. Yeah. It's a deep desire, you know, to yeah. be restored physically to one another's presence. So I, I can really relate to that just in that simple way. But yes, I long for that. If we put a, a term to it, you're longing for the communion of saints. Yeah. And we all long for that. Mm-hmm. Kyle, I, I can't wait to know you. you. You reveal, in and through your body, Kyle, you reveal an unrepeatable beam of God's glory. Nobody else reveals the beam of glory that you reveal, Kyle. I can't wait to know you, Kyle, in the communion of saints. Please pray for me that I'm there because I want to know you, Kyle. And I, you know what really gets me excited, Wendy? I tell my students this often. really gets me excited, the thought of people knowing you. Thank you, my love. <laughs> it really does. I can't wait for the whole communion of saints to know you as, as I've had the privilege of of knowing you in this life. You, you reveal a beam of God's glory that nobody reveals, and I've gotten to know that beam of God's glory. And let's pray that when we can realize that when we are there, we'll be so happy to reveal yes. what we were made to reveal yes. and yes. not concerned that someone else is revealing something better yes. of God's yes, glory. Yes, that's right. We're, we're each just made to reveal what God what, made us what to reveal. God made us to re- that's yeah. what makes each person unrepeatable. Right. That's good. Next question. Okay. Okay. So this is a question from a wife who has a complicated situation, but she may not be the only one. I think some of our listeners can relate to this situation. Is she remaining anonymous? She is. Bless you, dear anonymous wife. So she says, my husband, uh, and they've been married five years, was previously married. I was baptized Catholic, but didn't embrace the faith until last year when I had a conversion experience. My husband and I were not married in the church, and he has no religion. Through this conversion experience, I understood more deeply that I was living out of the state of grace. They weren't married in the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, We began the process of having his previous marriage dissolved, but a priest has made it clear to me that I do have a choice that would allow me to follow God's will to live as brother and sister. So this is, Mm -hmm. you know, a challenging Mm -hmm. situation. She says, it seemed wrong to make that decision without my husband. But when I brought it to him, he was not open to it. After more discerning, I've decided to move forward with living as brother and sister, Mm. Mm. even if my husband is angry about it. Mm. Wow. She says, I, I am condensing this question, but she certainly says she's meeting with a priest, she's praying a lot, she's yeah. reading scripture, so a lot of graces are flowing here. But she asks if you have advice for her, any words of wisdom on how to address this with her husband. Um, and then a, a practical question, is it really necessary to sleep in separate beds? She says that would be kind of challenging, I think, mm-hmm. practically speaking. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Wow. God bless you, dear anonymous wife. Yeah, these are some deep, deep realities. Number one, let, let's for the for other listeners, let's uh, maybe 
give some background here as to why she's going down this path, especially if there are listeners out there who, who don't understand the church's teaching here on, on marriage. The teaching is this, that when marriage takes place, when a valid sacrament comes into being, uh, when there is a valid union and then there is a divorce, uh, and if someone remarries, Jesus says, if you divorce and remarry, you commit adultery. And the statement there that Jesus is making is marriage is forever. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if this marriage is real, uh, the certificate of divorce, it might have some status in a courtroom, but in the eyes of God, that that first marriage is real. So if you're in bed sleeping with someone else as if this other person is your spouse, when you're actually married to the other person, you're committing adultery. So that's the one situation based on her husband's previous marriage. Correct. So her situation is she was, am I right? She was a baptized Catholic, Mm -hmm. but didn't have faith when she met this man she married. So they didn't marry in the church. But nonetheless, as a baptized Catholic, baptized Catholics, unless they have made a formal renunciation of their faith, Mm -hmm. uh, and by formal renunciation, this is the way it was taught to me, formal renunciation would be like, I, you write a letter to your bishop and you say, I formally renounce my baptism. I formally renounce my Catholic faith. If someone was baptized Catholic and did that, they would no longer be obligated to follow the form of the sacrament of marriage. Mm-hmm. But as a baptized Catholic, I'm assuming here that this person did not formally renounce the faith, so she is considered by the church a baptized Catholic and therefore is obligated to follow the form of the sacrament of marriage, which is, in the normal course of events, unless there's an exception granted, to get married in the Catholic Church with an official witness of the Church who is there to witness the exchange of vows. So she did not do that, so in the eyes of the Church, her marriage is not valid. So she's faced now with the circumstance of realizing, because she's come to faith, which is an amazing grace in your life. Praise God for that. Coming Mm -hmm. to faith in your life is an amazing, amazing grace. Now she's faced with the challenge of recognizing, wow, I didn't get married in the church, and I'm, I'm sleeping with this man who, you know, legally in the eyes of the state, he's my husband, but in the eyes of the church, he's not. So I'm, in the eyes of the church, I'm having sexual relations with a man to whom I'm not married. So this priest rightly counseled her that an option is to live as brother and sister. Right. And I'll just throw in this comment Mm -hmm. um, that it is possible for a person who's been not validly married in the church to then come to the church to be married. Correct. And they are taking steps in that direction because before they could Thank do you for that. that, yes, that's an important her husband's clarification. former marriage would have to right. be dealt with, you know, in terms of, in light of the church. Correct. So, so since her, the man with whom she's living under the legal reality of marriage, but not the sacramental reality of marriage, was married previously, right. they can't simply go, in, go to the church and say, let's get married in the church because he has a previous marriage which the Catholic Church recognizes as valid until demonstrated otherwise. Right. So they are taking the, I'm right, right. that and they are so, taking the necessary steps to... In other to, words, this may be a temporary situation right. of living as brother and sister. That's kind of... Until his marriage is granted a declaration of nullity, right. if it is indeed mm-hmm. granted. It's not always a guarantee that that's going to be granted. Right. 
But if that is granted, then they could get married in the church. But in the meantime, what is she to do? Mm-hmm. Now we're at the situation. Yes. And you, exactly. were, you were correct to clarify that one's uh, circumstance. So this priest is rightly counseling her that one option would be to live as brother and sister. So really what's going on here is, I'm going to put it starkly first. I'm just going to put it out there and then we can unpack. But here's really what is at stake. Where does my fidelity lie? Mm. Is it more important for me to please Christ here or is it more important to please my husband? Mm -hmm. And Jesus has some very direct statements about these kind of things. Uh, Things like, if you do not renounce your mother and your father, you're not worthy of me. If you put others in front of me, you're not worthy of me. What kind of human being can make such a claim? Mm -hmm. That is, I mean, only God That only makes sense if Jesus is God. If Jesus is God, it makes sense for Jesus to say, hey, if you prefer to please a human being over pleasing God, then you have your priorities wrong. And we don't tend to think in these terms. We tend to think, how cruel is the Catholic Church to tell this couple who's been, you know, living as husband and wife all these years, they can't sleep together. Well, there's a lot at stake here. The, The church is saying there's something bigger going on. Where does our ultimate happiness come from? If happiness is all about just pleasing ourselves in this life, then it seems foolish to give up the sexual union in this situation. But if sexual union is a sign of a greater reality. And that's going back to our previous question about it the is. afterlife. Right. And why, is, why are men and women no longer given in marriage and the resurrection? Because the union of man and woman here on planet Earth, and let's be more specific, when the two become one flesh in that intimate sexual embrace, it is meant to be a sign of a heavenly reality. And if we elevate the sign above the heavenly reality, we have heaven and earth backwards. So this is really what is at stake. The heavenly reality is at stake. And I I just want to commend this woman. God bless you for wrestling with these questions as you are wrestling with them. And yeah, there's going to be, you said your husband, uh, you know, again, I'm using the husband in the sense of what the, you know, what the civil reality is. But in the church reality, this man with whom you are living, who you've actually realized is not technically your husband, uh, you shouldn't be having sexual relations with someone you're not married to. Now, you might have obligations to him because maybe you have children together. It wouldn't be wise for you not to be living in the same house. Then the question you raised, is it wise for you to be sleeping in the same bed? Well, that's, that's a prudential call. I can't really answer that question for you. Is it possible for a man and woman to sleep in the same bed and not have sexual relations? It is possible. Is it prudent? Is it wise? Is it recommended? Is it the pr- appropriate course? That would be for you to determine. You know, it sounds like you're already meeting with a wise priest, and hopefully he has some good counsel in that regard, and he can guide you because he, he knows the practicals uh, that I don't know. But in terms of your husband not agreeing with this, again, that's a question of to whom do you want to be faithful, your heavenly bridegroom or your, this man with whom you do have some obligations because you've had this relationship all these years, but to whom are you obligated in a more concrete and more direct way? And Jesus himself said, I've come not to bring peace but a sword. 
In other words, he's saying, there are times in your life where fidelity to me will cause disruption in your human relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of those situations. Again, none of this makes sense if Jesus is not God. This only makes sense in light of higher realities. We could put it this way. It's a question of what we worship. And that word worship, it actually means that to which we ascribe the most worth. Worthship. If we worship human relationships, if we think those are the ultimate realities, well then none of what the church is teaching here is going to make any sense. But the, this woman has had a conversion Mm-hmm. And when we have a conversion, what we're having a conversion about is really a conversion of what we worship. We've been converted from ascribing ultimate worth to the things of this earth to ascribing ultimate worth to the things of heaven. And that causes, oh my gosh, I, what, what are the implications of ascribing worthship, ultimate worthship to Christ? That does change our priorities. It changes our understanding of our sexual choices. So I want to commend this woman for wrestling with these realities. Uh, And I also would encourage you to read chapter three. I think it's chapter three. No, it's chapter, I don't know, it's either chapter two or three of uh, Good News About Sex and Marriage. That's my Q&A book where I get into the nitty gritties of, of these kind of things in the chapter on the sacrament of marriage and questions of annulment. Yes, and it may be something that interests your civil husband as well to read some of that. I know yes. you've shared some uh, of your understanding of these things with him and as you've approached him about this topic, and maybe that would also be helpful to him. We'll certainly keep you and your husband in our prayers because this is a, a, a challenging part of your journey. That doesn't mean Very it's challenging, not... Yeah you know, flooded with graces. Challenges and graces aren't mutually exclusive That's at right. all. In fact, they, they tend to arrive together. So we're, we're rejoicing with you in the graces that are sustaining you and guiding you. And, um, you know, certainly feel compassion for the struggle and challenge that is before you right now. Just want you to know that our prayers are with you and grateful for the opportunity to share this with you and our other listeners. I have one more thought to share with her, and it's this, and the listeners on this question, that fidelity to Christ can never, ever mean something is amiss in our human relationships. In other words, this woman learning to love Jesus more, it will teach her to love this man more. Mm -hmm. There can never be a contradiction in loving Jesus and loving other people if we really understand what love is. If we really understand what love is, to love Jesus more is to love other people more. If your goal, which I certainly believe it is, is to love this man more in your life, loving Jesus more is the way to learn to love him more. Even if that love brings you face to face with very difficult decisions that he may in the present moment not understand but we don't just live for this present moment. Eternity is at stake in these questions. And this man, God willing, one day there, there will be an opportunity for you to marry in the church and bring all of this full circle. But 
your choices now, these difficult choices now, will bear fruit that last. A fruit that lasts. And in eternity, this man, let's just take the scenario, say, say he doesn't get an annulment for his other marriage, and they have to live as brother and sister the rest of their lives, and he's bitter about it. In eternity, he will not be bitter. He will be dancing in joy before you for your fidelity to Christ, because your fidelity to Christ can also save him. Mm. That's the reality of it. That's beautiful. I think we have time for one more. Here's a question from Caleb. Caleb. Hey, Caleb. Caleb asks, what is the difference between letting unruly desires die and repression of desire? Great question, Caleb. So I I know where where he's going with this. It sounds like Caleb has read some of my stuff or listened to other podcasts where we've talked about this. What he's getting at is a teaching that I have drawn from St. John Paul II, which is the difference between, well, let's, let's back up. We all experience disordered sexual desires. It's part of our broken, fallen humanity. And by disordered sexual desires, I mean the inclination to treat other human beings as objects for our selfish pleasure. We think, we tend to think in this fallen world, this is just the way it is. This is the way men and women feel, and this is the way they live, and we end up using one another because sex feels good. Well, Jesus interrupts that train of thought and that pattern of living and says, in the beginning it was not so. There was an original plan from which we have fallen. There was an original plan in which man and woman were naked without shame. They were naked without shame because they experienced sexual desire as the desire to love as God loves. In other words, in the beginning, before sin messed it all up, eros, erotic desire, expressed agape, divine sacrificial love. We can all recognize we don't experience it that way. It's because we are broken. And this is why Jesus says, if you even look at others lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Adultery, the word adulterate means to alter something, to make something other than what it is intended to be. To adulterate means to alter something. So when we treat other human beings as objects for our sexual pleasure, we are adulterating God's plan for sex. We are making it something other than it was meant to be. It's meant to be loving divinely. This is my body given up for you. This is what sex is meant to be. In our fallen world, we don't experience it this way. So Caleb is saying, what do we do here? Because in my teaching, drawn from John Paul II, I've always said repression is not the path forward. Most people think you only have two choices when you experience that disordered, selfish desire. Indulge it or repress it. And if those are the only two options, which one appears to be more holy? Repressing it. Repression looks more holy, but if that's the, our approach to our sexuality, as John Paul II says, it's only a matter of time before what we have repressed is going to explode in all kinds of disordered acting out. There's another way that Caleb is talking about, but he's saying, what, what's the difference between repressing and what I've talked about, allowing our sinful desires to be crucified? This comes right out of Scripture, where St. Paul says, those who follow Christ allow their sinful passions to be crucified. 
But we know crucifixion is not the final story about Jesus. What comes next? Resurrection. This means as we die with Christ, we can also live with him, a new life, St. Paul says. If we carry in our bodies the death of Jesus, we will also carry in our bodies the resurrected life of Jesus. Redemption happens through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Our sinfulness, our twisted up, disordered desires, we have to be willing to die to them with Jesus, in Jesus, and then the gift becomes a new experience, a restoration in our hearts. It's not a magic trick. It's not like say this prayer to Jesus and all of a sudden all your disordered desires will be rightly ordered. But as we take up our cross and follow, we can come to experience more and more rightly ordered desire. All of that needed to be said in order to answer Caleb's question, which is what is the difference between repressing Mm -hmm. these disordered desires and dying to them? The difference, I would put it this way, Caleb, is between self-reliance and reliance on the gift. What do I mean? Self-reliance is when we take our broken humanity into our own hands and try to come up with our own solutions. I'm not going to think about that. 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 That is... (laughs) (laughs) Why are you laughing at me? That was pretty funny how you said that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My wife was giving me this funny smile. (laughs) I know there's love in your eyes when you look at me that way. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so that would, Caleb, that would be self-reliance trying to repress the desire, but dying to it is a reliance on the gift of redemption. Dying to it is a very different posture. It's, it's this, it's like, okay, so there you are, you have the sexual temptation, whatever it might be. You say, Lord, thank you, thank you for the gift of creating me to be me. Thank you for the gift of my sexual desires. But I recognize something's twisted up in me. There's something selfish. There's something egotistical. There's something lustful in what I'm experiencing here. I give this lustful desire to you, Lord. I ask for the power of redemption to work in me that I would, by your grace, that's the key line, by your grace, it's not self-reliance, by your grace, I would be willing to die to this lustful desire trusting wholeheartedly in the gift of restoration that you want to work in my heart. My confessor has said to me, Christopher, every time you come to confession, I want you to confess these two sins. Number one is self-reliance, and number two is self-condemnation, because our self-reliance is never reliable. And when we try to save ourselves, it never works. And then we start beating ourselves up for the fact that our self-reliance was not reliable. And that's where the self-condemnation comes in. So often our our sexual falls, we pour salt on the wound. We have these sexual slip-ups, these sexual falls. We commit these sexual sins. And then we beat ourselves for having fallen. Well, that's just pouring salt on the wound. What we need to do instead is be in that posture of openness to the gift of redemption. We are miserable in our fallen humanity. We are miserable creatures in our fallen humanity. I'm thinking of that old stupid commercial, I've fallen and I can't get up. 
Uh, remember that? What was yes, that? What yes. was that thing? Some, some. Was it for a first alert? Oh yeah, first alert. Where the old people yeah. need the. Yeah. I shouldn't say old people like that because I'm getting to be one. Um, <laughs> a very good life-saving device. A very good that life-saving was well device for. Yes. Kind of stuck in our cultural memory. There. Yes, the guy, the lady who's fallen down the steps, and yes. I'm falling and I can't get up. Well, that's us in our fallen humanity. We need a savior. We are in misery, but here's the good news. Our God is rich in misericordia, mercy. And misericordia means a heart that gives itself to those in misery. Mm. So, Caleb, to repress it is misery. Uh, To be willing, by God's grace, to enter into the death and resurrection of disordered desire. And on the other side, it comes out in a new way where we're learning to love that's God's mercy working in our misery. I could just share a tiny bit about that Please. because that process of um, not repressing, but of kind of giving the desire over, there is an aspect of sin, fallenness, that you know we just simply have to accept humbly and you know confess our sinfulness. There's also a truth to be found in understanding that. God made us with good desires, yes. and these sinful things are, are twistings of those good desires. Amen. I feel like we've shared about this before in our podcast. But preach it, Wendy, preach it. I think it, it relates to this question, is that, you know, some of the resurrection that we talk about experiencing in a more like, you know, just practical way to say it is a new experience of desire where we see a true and good desire yes. in our hearts that you know, was placed there by God, that in our original sinful state and in the interference of the evil one in our lives, we've experienced a sinful desire. The Lord wants to, I think, as part of the resurrection, is to show us Amen. the original desire that's always founded in truth, you know, the, the truth of the, our own dignity and the dignity of every other person, the truth of, of vows and holy just honoring of God's order in creation, all of that, you know, is what brings about resurrection, I think. You're reminding me of a great quote from JP2 from Love and Responsibility, his book. He says, chastity, sexual purity, the goal is never to repress it. The goal is always to raise sexual attraction and desire to the level of the dignity of the person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And here we come to experience an altogether positive side of chastity, of purity. There is a negative side. We have to say no to the things that are disordered. But that negative side, that no, is for a much greater yes, where we are able to see the true, the good, and the beautiful, the true dignity of the human being revealed through the spousal meaning of the body and desire to sacrifice our lives for the goodness and dignity of that other. That's redeemed eros. Mm -hmm. And Pope Benedict XVI, quoting various fathers of the church, says... Is there any more mad eros than Christ, the bridegroom, giving up his body for his bride on the cross? That's what we're called to. True erotic desire, eros, infused with agape, is exactly what we see when Christ, the bridegroom, says to his bride, this is my body given up for you. We're all called to love in that way, but we can only do it by God's grace. And that brings us to the final 
little bit of our show where we thank you guys for being part of this. We invite you again to submit your questions at AskChristopherWest.com. If you have a question, please send it to us. We would love to answer your question on one of our shows. Be patient with us because we do get a lot of questions and we have to sift through them and we're only able to do about three questions on every show. But please do send them. Better chance of us answering your question if you send it. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Doesn't mean we absolutely will, but we know we absolutely won't if you don't send it. There you go. Good point. So please send it. And thank you everyone out there who is a patron of this work at the Theology of the Body Institute. We can't do this work. We can't reach the world with this message unless there are people who believe in what we're doing and support us. If you are interested in being a patron of the TOB Institute, would you click that link at the show notes on your screen there and learn more? All of our patrons get exclusive benefits, exclusive formation in this vision. Uh, You can learn more about that by clicking on that link. We'd love to enter into that relationship with you guys. God bless you, and we will see you on our next episode. And do not forget, you are indispensable, irreplaceable, and unrepeatable. You are a gift. Become what you are. Amen. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes. Is it chapter two? Gosh darn it. It's chapter three. Chapter three of my book.